0: I'm Emma Shortis. And I'm Chloe Ward. And this is the Barely Getting By podcast. And this episode of Barely Getting By, we're going to be talking about something Chloe and I have been thinking about for a while. And it's got a kind of new lease on life in the last couple of weeks with the OK Boomer meme. And that, of course, is intergenerational warfare.
1: It seems that every person has a racist auntie on Facebook these days, every white person. I stand very much corrected. Every white person has a racist auntie on Facebook. That's where I wanted to start our conversation today about boomers and intergenerational conflict. I want us to unpack what's going on in all these Twitter fights between angry middle-aged boomers on the one hand and poor precarious millennials on the other. And I thought I'd start with this figure that we're going to call Auntie Deb?
0: Yeah, Auntie Deb, Auntie Susie. Auntie Susie. Yeah. I'm happy with
1: Auntie Susie. who yep. seems to to me is kind of a stand-in for all the racist white aunties on Facebook that we probably can't we can't name for fear of being
0: uh, for fear of being called out for defamation. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean I I've I've certainly got a racist auntie on Facebook, a few cousins as well. You know, I should I should declare that they're all Collingwood supporters as well, which has you know added an an interesting element to the mix recently.
1: I'm going to add here that Emma is wearing prison stripes today in the studio. She is a signed up Collingwood supporter. She's in, she's you know she's yeah. on she's on board with you guys. Um, I'm implicating it's... myself in
0: the conversation, but I think you know it, it is it is quite it's quite a thing to have your family revealed to you in a way that I I think. You know, for me at least, they hadn't been before. Is is that your experience? I know you have also have a yes. racist auntie on Facebook, Auntie Susie. We'll call we'll call her Auntie Susie because <laughs> I think that that yeah, that definitely helps.
1: Um, so yeah, I mean, going back, so my Auntie Susie, I actually unfriended her on Facebook. A few you unfriended ago. her. I unfriended her, okay. and this was after about two years of increase, just these escalations in her behaviour on Facebook, and you know, it starts with her. Um, her defending Sonia Kruger when Sonia Kruger is calling for a ban on Muslim in- immigration to Australia okay. on Breakfast TV, yep. you know, earnest defences of Pauline Hanson being bullied in Parliament, um, oh God. yeah, and all the way to what what really provoked what provoked me to unfriend her on Facebook was after I did the stupidest thing I could and I called her out on it was a particularly racist meme that she shared. I said, okay, that's enough. Wrote her a very long reply, telling her that, that wasn't on telling a public her what, reply. A public reply. Okay. It also drew in all the other Auntie Susies into the conversation. It got, yeah. I was actually drive. I was doing the eight hour drive from Adelaide to Melbourne that day, yeah. and every time I stopped to go to the loo, or go and get a pie, or fill up my car, I was checking in on Facebook, and I had just this string oh, of,
0: of racist in- Auntie Susies. Yeah. Yes. yeah,
1: and it really it did make me think because you know I. I think it's it's absolutely true that the standard you walk by is the standard that you accept, and that's what I was thinking when I said, "Okay, enough's enough. I'm going to call out Aunt- Auntie Susie on this absolute nonsense and tell her what she's saying is incorrect. It's also offensive, and you know she really does need to just shut up and listen to other people for once." But of course, it massively backfired, and I had no it had no impact on her. It didn't change her mind. So in the end, I just said, "That's it." I made my I've I've done this I've done my dash and I unfriended her and I haven't had any contact with her since. I don't think she even realized that I unfriended her because she has no yeah. idea what she's doing on the internet. But it just it it was interesting cuz it kind of I was asking myself that question of, you know, how much energy should we spend arguing with people like the auntie susies of this world who will not be convinced.
0: Yeah, I think I think it is a really Good question. And for me, that has resulted in me not engaging at all. So so my own racist aunties and cousins, I haven't bothered commenting on any of the memes at all. But because, you know, for precisely that reason, or at least that's how I justify it to myself, that there's no point engaging with this because, you know, their minds aren't gonna be changed. They don't care what I think. Um but then, you know, I also ask myself, like, is that just me being a coward? Is that is that just me? You know, not wanting to create family conflict because because then that of course it doesn't just stay on Facebook. It then shows up at Christmas, and and I haven't been willing to take that risk. And but kind of what has resulted in for me is like withdrawing completely and having trouble kind of even looking at these people when you know when, when we do when we do meet every year at Christmas and just keeping it to talking about our kids and stuff. But I think there is a, you know there's a certain cowardice that comes with that. Well, um, look, I'm never, I don't think you're a coward at all,
1: am I? Think you're, you know, I genuinely think that you're one of the most politically brave people I know. I mean, you're you're here on this podcast talking about the Auntie Susies of the world. I think that's at least one step in the right direction. But I think you're right; it's it is really difficult. And one of the one of the interesting things I've noticed about these people is how different their behaviour is between you know those Chris, awkward Christmas lunches where they won't broach these subjects and on the internet and on social media, where they will just let fly with all sorts of noxious opinions. Um, And it makes me wonder, do you you think that the internet has just enabled people to speak without shame? Or is that what's going on?
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I I mean, I think that's a pretty common way of explaining it, that the internet gives people this kind of a screen to hide behind to to say these horrible things that they wouldn't otherwise say in public but I, I you know i'm not sure like in in my family it's we sort of wouldn't have those conversations in public so it's not necessarily that people aren't willing to say things it's just that they you know i guess up until recently were so politically disengaged that we didn't talk about that kind of stuff i i mean is it like that was it like that in your family
1: yeah I've, absolutely and i think i mean i think The internet is part of it. I think the internet definitely enables people to say what they really think in a way they wouldn't in, you know, a one-to-one, in in, in an in-person interaction because it does, it kind of cuts you loose from those social codes and the etiquette that says that families must always be polite to each other. Um, But at the same time, I think that something has changed for me and I suspect it probably has changed for you in recent years. And this is, I mean, I'm I'm not saying that... I'm particularly proud or that I'm, you know, I've been on this, in- well, I have been on a pretty incredible political journey over the last few years with everything that's going on in the world. But I'm also kind of a late arrival to this because, you know, I think I'm, I'm proud of myself for standing up to Auntie Susie, but she was racist a long time before that. And I think it is un- incumbent on people like us to pick up on that. And we probably should have picked up on that a lot sooner.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think it's a mark of our our privilege, you know, that we didn't have those conversations about politics because that was a luxury that we could engage in. You know, it didn't it didn't affect us because we were safe and comfortable. But the internet has kind of given, I, I don't know, created this space, as you say, to to talk about things that wouldn't, you know, to have opinions on things that you wouldn't necessarily have voiced at Christmas dinner or whatever. And I think, you know, I think particularly as humanities scholars, as historians. You know this this manifests in a particular way for us, because it's also this space where people feel able to voice opinions that have kind of no basis in in any kind of training or knowledge. and And we've both encountered it directly from our families, where it is just kind of assumed that you can talk about history or politics without that basis. You know that we've done years years of of training in this area, but it's meaningless. Yeah,
1: that's no that's that is exactly how I feel. Like I remember when I had this long argument with Auntie Susie, it's one of the real frustrations for me was she was talking about a very specific period in history. Now I remember she was talking about Enoch Powell, who was a notoriously racist, imperialistic British MP in sort of the, mid, the middle of the 20th century. And in 1968, he gave this infamous anti-immigration speech, which is known as the Rivers of Blood speech. She was talking about him like he was some sort of political hero. And I'm there saying, you know, I'm saying, actually, no, he was a racist. He was an imperialist. He's not a hero. This, I've studied this period intensively. I've spent years of my life researching this period and this country and what was going on in this time. But to her, that was nothing to what she was calling her lived experience. So, because she was there, she was there yeah. at the time. So, her lived experience invalidates what, for me, what what is my very carefully researched and carefully thought out historical argument.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you can't, you know, there's no way to compete with that kind of lived experience. You know, I lived through the fall of the Berlin Wall or the end of the Cold War, or I saw this happen or X happen. You know, I understand history because I'm old and I lived through it and how could you, like a younger person, no matter your extensive training qualifications in this, understand More than I do. And I think, you know, the humanities is kind of unique in that way because these same people wouldn't try and, like, boomer-splain? Is that a word? I I think it is now. Like you know they wouldn't boom explain to my brother how to build a house like he's a he's a builder they're not going to explain to him how to do his job whereas i think people kind of feel empowered when it comes to politics and history and the humanities to use their lived experience to explain things to people in a way that it's that's really difficult to refute because the that, the kind of training that we do i think pe- people don't necessarily understand and also don't respect and the internet is this space where you can your kind of lived experience trumps everything else, for want of a better term.
1: Yeah, and I think that they they kind of lay out that lived experience as just this succession of facts, and that's what history is. When history is, in fact, history is interpretation. But the second you say that, then you fall into another hole with your argument because they'll always come back to you and they'll be like, oh, well, if it's interpretation, then it's just an opinion and it's just your opinion. My opinion
0: is just as valid. Exactly, or more valid because I have more lived experience than you. So you just can't win, and then it co- it comes back to this question: you know, is it worth engaging? Is it is it worth having those fights?
1: Well, I think I think it is worth engaging, but maybe not. It's not worth engaging directly with them, which I think is the point of this episode, where we want to talk about who boomers are, and. What, how they differ from us as millennials, and even from you know our immediate generational predecessors, Generation X, and what that means for politics today?
0: Okay, Chloe. So to go to go all historian, who are the Boomers? Who are we talking about? Okay, so roughly we're talking about
1: people who were born in the in the democratic west, uh, from the end of the Second World War, so say 1945, through to around the mid 1960s. And more important than those dates in demarcating boomers from other generations is the fact of their their experience. So parts of that lived experience that the Auntie Susies of the world probably won't talk about, which is that they were born one in the wake of the Second World War. So they were born to a generation that was determined that that would never happen again and that was bent on creating a peaceful and more prosperous world for them to inherit and two, that they were the beneficiaries of what we saw in the in from 1945 onwards through to about the mid 70s, which was the massive expansion of the state, and with that expansion of welfare and especially the expansion of healthcare, and to a lesser extent, the expansion of educational opportunities.
0: So they were pretty lucky, pretty lucky. And the, as you say, this is a kind of common thread across Western democracies. But I think there it's it's worth kind of pointing out the differences maybe between between those democracies. So so there's commonalities between boomers in the US and Australia and the UK, for example. Absolutely. But there are also important differences. So I know you've got a particular take on Australian boomers in pop culture, recent pop culture resurgence,
1: resurgence. I don't know. Yeah, that was too strong. I don't know if I'd call it a resurgence because, quite frankly, I didn't love the first episode of the new Sea Change. You didn't. I, oh, I didn't. I'm not it was it was really disappointing. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know why I was disappointed. I had no great hopes for it, seeing as it moved from the ABC to Nine. But whatever. Yeah. I digress. Um, so, look, when I think of an Australian boomer, I always think of people like my mother who sat in front of their TVs religiously on Sunday nights in the late '90s and early 2000s to watch Sea Change. <laughs> which was a landmark TV series one of my favorite TV series of all time and it was about this boom you know this boomer dream of a woman in the middle of her professional life who packs it all in and moves to the beautiful seaside town of Pearl Bay which is also in real life is Barwon Heads and remakes her life and the reason that makes me think of boomers is because one it was it was quite heavily aspirational so it was all about the sort of person who could do that who could pack in yeah. her professional life and move to the seaside without any particular constraints, um, and also because I think that that was an idea that a lot of a lot of prof- older Australian professionals really latched onto in the in the late, mid to late nineties, which in terms of Boomers' cultural and economic outlook was a really critical period because they were the people who, apart from their, you know, living through a period of massive um, massive expansion of state support in the from the nineteen fifties onwards they were also the main beneficiaries of some of the Howard era, era reforms in terms of liberalising the economy and really pro- underwriting um, boomer success.
0: Yeah, okay. And I, I think it also had this, um, Sea Change also had this really interesting thread of boomer environmentalism.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like it's interesting watching it again, which I have done recently. <laughs> Still preparation. I'm, well, no, 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 because I'm a secret boomer. Um <laughs> It is. It is interesting because the original sea change was, it was in a very community in a very community community oriented way. It was quite, forward-thinking in terms of environmentalism. It was all about preservation of the natural habitat, but at the same time, it was also about cultural pre- preservation. So about preserving this beautiful small town against the ravages of development. Yeah. Um, so, yeah kind of yeah.
0: boomer nimbyism to, to yes. combine two terms. Well,
1: but I think it probably wasn't NIMBYism at the time, but it it sowed the seeds of NIMBYism. Yeah. Which, just to clarify, is not in my backyard. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, so for instance, I'm it would be basically impossible to move to Barwon Heads now as a millennial. Um, um, yeah. And part of that would be because of this sea change effect, which saw boomers packing up and moving to the coastline. Yeah. Yeah, and now they're very protective of that and, you know, the the, the feeling and the ambience of living in a small town. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: and we're still de- dealing, of course, with the aftermath of that, not the least of which in the recent Australian election. But we won't talk about that because it's too depressing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Emma, tell me about US boomers. Okay, so I am... Also going to return to pop culture to to ground us in US Boomers because that's how I kind of orient myself, which is probably revealing a lot. And so my pop culture reference is actually the series Mad Men, which I adore. The Boomers in Mad Men are not actually the main characters. The Boomers are the children of the main characters. So Don and Betty Draper's three kids, um, Sally, Bobby and Jean, are Boomers. So Sally's born in 1954, right in the middle of the Boomer generation, and these kids are growing up wealthy and comfortable. They're in a big house in upstate New York, part of this kind of um, retreat to the suburbs that, that boom, the boomers' parents did in the United States. They're very comfortable, but they're also coming of age in in kind of, particularly in the, in the Draper kids' case, in emotional turmoil. They're, they're growing up in the shadow of the Vietnam War. In the US, this is the supposed end of... Jim Crow-era segregation. So we have the civil rights movement, of course, which is a time of huge upheaval in the United States, which, which these white kids are kind of watching from their very comfortable big house in upstate New York. We also have the women's rights movement, the emergence of the women's rights movement, et cetera. So these, these kind of events and movements, are issues that are fundamentally shaping boomer politics as a, as a generation that are growing up in the shadow of these things, in both good and bad ways. So that's how I'm kind of orienting US boomers. I think particularly when it comes to civil rights and segregation, that political formation is really important and is playing out in, you know, maybe unexpected ways today. We're dealing with the consequences of that today.
1: Yeah, and I think what you're getting at, and I guess what I was kind of getting at implicitly, is that when we talk about boomers in this general way, and I'm putting this out there because I know that... You know, hashtag not all boomers. (laughs) We are talking about a particular section of this generation, one that is delineated by race. So we're talking about white boomers, absolutely, and two by class. So we're also
0: talking about prosperous, wealthy boomers. We're talking about the middle class. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think both of our references illustrate that. You know, that this is a generation that is is some some of which are moving into the middle class, facilitated by access to cheap in the US cheap education or free education here in Australia. So that the, the barriers to entry into the middle class are much smaller, weaker, whatever you want to call them, than they are fast now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think that another important qualification on that is that, we do know that participation in education did increase relative to, the, to their generational predecessors for boomers, but that then increased exponentially for Generation X, who were born from you know the mid-60s onwards, and for ourselves. Um, the big difference, I think, between boomers and us so, is that while we generally have more opportunities for education, we have fewer opportunities for secure and meaningful work.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and it, in order to get that ever elusive, secure and meaningful work, you have to have more and more levels of education. So, you know, boomers could kind of have a bachelor's degree, go to college. They didn't and, even need that. Yeah, exactly. And and kind of fall into that secure employment. Whereas now, you know, a bachelor's isn't enough, a master's isn't enough, often a PhD isn't enough for that kind of secure employment. And so that's the kind of change we're talking about Um but I, I think when we're we're talking about education, particularly in Australia, that makes us think of Whitlam boomers. Yeah, yeah. yeah who I'm going to call the good boomers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And when I say hashtag Nottal boomers, I'm thinking specifically of my own mother, who's a pretty good boomer. She that has heart, She's yeah. She's heartily endorsed us talking about the Auntie Susie's of this world. <laughs> she said, "Go girls, do it." <laughs> um, yeah. So you know that was a key for in Australia the Whitlam years. So from the early '70s through to the dismissal in 1975. Um, that was a really key moment and I guess another internal demarcation for this boomer generation. So if we're talking about Whitlamite boomers, we're talking about people who were generally socially progressive. But at the same time, that generation also has its limits. So like like older boomers who grew up under the prime ministership of Robert Menzies, who was a conservative prime minister, they also benefited from prosperity and from the welfare state and in particular they became very comfortable in the Hawke-Keating years in the 1980s and the 1990s. So what I think this means is that whether we're talking about the more reactionary boomers or if we're talking about more socially progressive boomers, we're always talking about people who assume that things are going to get better.
0: Um, Yeah, and I I think that's something that we've both encountered with our kind of the progressive Boom, as we know, exactly as you say, this idea that that things will will always get better, but maybe it's worth explaining what we mean by that. Well, I think
1: that I mean this goes. The point I'm trying to make is that you know a generational mentality. It's not just people getting up in the morning and thinking the same way. That's something that is fed by the social and the economic circumstances, even the political circumstances that they grow up in. So, you know, we're talking about people who experienced relative prosperity. They think that things, that's sort of their default setting. That's how they think things will always be. Um, If we think about that politically, then what we'll see, I mean, you know, I've talked about people who are either conservative, who, who are conservative, and people who are socially progressive, but we're also talking about people who generally have kind of a reformist idea of government, who think that government works in their favor, and that all government's role is really to tinker at the edges of social policy and of the economy in order to ensure their their continuing continuing prosperity, and so that's what I mean when I say that they think that things. Are always going to get better because they think that the world is working for them. And that's where there is this real contrast with, I think, the mentality of our generation where we are, and I think this is with good reason, generally much more cynical.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely makes sense. And I think we see that in that, you know, you mentioned Hawke Keating, like we see that in a kind of boomer yearning for the reform eras of, of Hawke and Keating where it is that kind of you know, some big reforms, but it's kind of, it's working with what you've already got. You're working with a structure that is sound. And I think a part of our cynicism is coming from the very stark realisation that that structure is completely unsound. Yeah. And I think boomers have, have real trouble kind of understanding that viewpoint, which is why, you know, in a conversation about climate change and how everything's terrible, you know, my dad will say to me, oh, but you've got to be optimistic. And I'm saying, but why, <laughs> you know, why, what is there to, to make me optimistic? You know, being pessimistic doesn't mean that I'm not going to try and act or, you know, we're not going to try and do something about it. But we don't have this kind of fundamental belief that things, we're on this kind of inevitable march towards, you know, an end point that is good, you know, that that thing, things like I think Joe Biden's a really good example. So you know Joe Biden talks about Trump as if he's an aberration, like as if you know this is a kind of blip on the historical march towards of a blip on the march of, towards American progress and all we've got to do is kind of get rid of Trump and we can just go back to that march, you know, we can get back on the straight road. And what we've all that we've really done is strayed off that road. You know, things kind of go wrong, but we're 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 marching forward. And we I think don't share that view.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that we also we also are of the view, well, you and I personally and a lot of people we speak to these days, a lot of our friends and our colleagues, are also of a more critical view and we see we can kind of see that it also maybe that 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 road was that was always an illusion. Because there were yeah. always people who who've been left behind. I mean I mentioned before that there are divisions within when we talk about boomers we're talking generally about middle class white people. There have always been people who have been left behind by, you know, in the in this great progressive march of history through the second half of the twentieth century, and I'm thinking specifically of, of say, poor boomers. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, a really good example of that that's kind of coming into into public consciousness now is in aged care. So we have an Aged Care Royal Commission going on at the federal level at the moment, which is exposing all these gaps in our system of aged care that is leaving older people, so older boomers who don't have the resources to afford, say, private aged care, they're falling through the gaps. And some of the stories that are coming out of that, of neglect, of ill treatment, of, you know, of chronic, just chronic problems in the aged care system are absolutely horrifying.
0: Yeah, they they absolutely are. And I think, you know, that problem becomes particularly acute when we look at boomer women, at older boomer women who who suffer as well under the kind of double constraints of having, you know, not as much super because they took time out of careers to have children, et cetera, et cetera. And so that actually, you know, so a huge percentage of people on Newstart are actually single boomer women. So again, you know, we've we've got to be really careful, as you say, when we're talking about a generation of people to, to distinguish between class and, again, as always, race, which I think particularly in Australian conversations about boomers gets glossed over completely. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And what we can see through by identifying those groups that were left behind is that this, the world that powerful, you know, what I want to talk about, I suppose what we could call them is a kind of a boomer elite. So the world that the boomer elite inherited and that was constructed for them was constructed on this very particular vision of a white middle-class man. So, for instance, the superannuation system that was built with, you know, progressive intentions by Paul Keating, that was built around the needs
0: of a white middle-class man. It it absolutely was. Yeah. And I think that perceived threats to the status of that white middle-class man is is a lot of the reason that we're in the politics we're in today. So the perceived threat of the left behind for for one of a better term to that status is part of the reason that Trump is appealing to white middle class voters. Yeah, right? Because he he positions himself as protecting that particular class of people from those external threats to their prosperity. So prosperity is constructed in a way that it's not it's not about you know state intervention and the kind of things we talked about earlier that created this generation of people. It's about the people beneath you coming to take it off you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also something potentially even more dangerous that runs alongside that, which is that these people, so you know let's call them you know this elite, this boomer elite, that they are also kind of your every person. So not only are they a protected group, but they are also a stand-in for what is commonsensical for what is right, you know, for this sort of median person that we should be targeting all social policy at.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's the Joe Biden strategy of winning back the white middle-class boomers or the white Rust Belt boomers. You know, that is the target audience. It's not all these other people kind of on the, other, on the outside. This is where we focus all of our attention.
1: So, yeah, so we're talking about this sort of left-behind-other who aren't the boomer elite. Um, let's talk about millennials. So it's 79 through to sort of the early 90s. My sister who was born in 1979 just falls in into the millennial generation and I don't think she's very happy about it. I think she'd rather be a Gen Xer.
0: <laughs> I think probably all early millennials would like the special status of Gen Xers, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, and I think that's really important to point out because I think in a lot of the mainstream coverage or discussion of millennials or whatever – we, we are kind of construed as the oldest millennials, you know, that, and that mostly that's kind of the really young generation, but actually millennials are turning 40. Like they, they have grown up kids, they have big kids and stuff. So it's worth remembering, I think that this is a generation, like talk about generalizations. Like this is a huge demographic.
1: Yeah. Of people. I, mean, I think, I actually think that it's worth making a distinction between people of say our age and people who you know who are only 3 years young 3 or 4 years younger than us who had Facebook during high school.
0: Yeah, exactly. You grew up in a completely different digital world. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so
1: yeah, so so what would you say I mean as a millennial what would you say are the, sort of the formative experiences that that sort of impress on your political outlook?
0: That's a good question. You know, I I think we've got we've kind of talked about this before, but for me it's those kind of political Awakening moments. So you know, growing up, growing up in a, a white middle class household, you know, you kind of taught, you know, whether deliberately or not, again that you're on this kind of forward march to progress. That your life will inevitably be better than the generation that has come before you. Um, you know, because that's that was true for my parents. Absolutely, their lives are better than than their parents' lives. And so you kind of you're taught that like. <laughs> this is a bad cliche, but like the world is your oyster, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. And then you have these kind of standout political moments where you get hints that maybe that's not true. So if, we've talked about this before, but for me, that's partly the invasion of Iraq. So it's attending protests in Melbourne with millions of other people, millions of other people across the world, feeling so empowered, feeling so connected to people around me about, you know, I don't know, the, the potential goodness of the world and, that being completely shut down right and and feeling like we had no say <laughs> that we had no power and that that for me was a really significant moment and I know it was for you too yeah
1: yeah absolutely and I think then the next moment for me would probably be the 2008 financial crash which yeah. I think ruined the you know the financial and the financial hopes of a lot of people of our generation um, and has had a, made a permanent mark on our job prospects between that, between that, and you know, this digital transformation that's happening in the economy and the move towards automation, I think we have a very different experience of an attitude towards
0: work. I think that's absolutely true. I think for both of us, you know, that realization is kind of cemented when we're we're doing our PhDs and we're sort of realizing what the what academia is is actually like, and that the generation before us who went in to secure permanent employment, you know, that 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 likelihood is is all but nil for us. And so we do have this very different idea of work that you don't just have a single career and that, you know, sometimes your career is marked by instability and precarity and therefore you do feel differently about work because if that's the way that work is in your life, it can't be the thing that defines you and the thing that you measure yourself against. There has to be other stuff. And I think boomers and our boomer parents who are very successful – Struggle to understand that because their experience of work is so different. Their their experience of work is is kind of all defining. Lives are built around those those careers, which for the most part are stable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that I mean that is a real flashpoint in these sort of intermittent conflicts between boomers and millennials, where you you know you see this endless stream of news articles where boomers are lamenting, you know, you know how work shy millennials are. And they have elevated, and you know, this is it isn't just boomers. This is, you know, this is an inheritance of the Protestant work ethic <laughs> to throw something very historical out there. Um, but this, you know, work and labour being raised to the level of being an actual moral value and a moral quality that's so, and that becomes, you know, a kind of a cudgel to beat millennials with because apparently we're work shy, you know, we're all just getting by on our, you know, eating eating out, eating our smashed avocados while we're not getting a job, blah, 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 blah. But I think what we have increasingly is a very different perspective on that where we see work as a means to an income. We're yep. not necessarily that romantic about about our work. I mean, I like my job, but, you know, my job, I don't see my job as defining me in any way. And I think what this, one of the interesting things that's, that that's doing for millennials is it's also while it's not great to be living through this this through this experience of precarity in some in some parts of the population it's also starting to spark off some interesting and even you know utopian ideas about what the world might look like without work
0: yeah okay i think that's a really interesting point but what do you mean? How do you explain that to a boomer, for example?
1: Well, okay. well, I don't know how I'd explain this to a boomer because I think we've already established that they wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> um, but last year I was reading a book by uh, a book called Bullshit Jobs. Sorry, swear words. Um, sorry for the ti- It doesn't count if it's a title. Yeah, does it? it doesn't count if it's a title, does it? So I was reading the book Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. And, I mean, David Graeber, he is kind of a utopian anarchist. And what he comes out with, he, he, ident- he basically goes through this catalogue of, you know, the jobs that, that people of our generation, even and people who are older than us are doing now. And he's identifying this lack of meaning that a lot of people are finding in their jobs. And, you know, basically that a lot of us are just shuffling paper. And a lot of our jobs could as, as easily be done by AI or by robots or by, or by computers. And what he comes out with is this idea that maybe what we should be looking, for, looking forward to is a future without work. And that means, you know, instituting some sort of program of universal basic income
0: or something like that to free us from work. Yeah, okay, which, like, I imagine for a boomer is a completely revolutionary, almost kind of unfathomable concept because, like, what what comes to mind when you say that? Like, I, I mean, I think one of the major generational conflicts is climate change, which, you know, hopefully we'll come back to the relationship between climate change and work when boomers talk about it i think is a really interesting one so this is a bit it's maybe a bit of a weird angle to come at it from but but bear with me because i think it speaks to our conversation about work and how it relates to climate change so how how we think about what the world what a climate changed world looks like but also what work might look like in a different future and that is if we go back to the australian election the lead up to the australian election which you know, is supposedly the climate change election. I'm doing like air quotes here. Um, and there's this conversation about the Labor Party wants to bring in, you know, a certain percentage or whatever of electric vehicles over a certain period of time. You know, they always have these like wonky caveats. But anyway, so the Labor Party's trying to bring in electric vehicles. Liberal, Liberals go on this big scare campaign about how you're not going to be able to have your SUVs. And Michaelia Cash in particular, who's a senator from Western Australia, did this line about how the Labor Party are coming for the tradies' utes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I blocked that out. Yeah, right. So you, so you, you, your tradies, like your fair dinkum Aussie tradies, aren't going to be able to have their fair dinkum Aussie utes. And f- for me, what that revealed was this really very boomer kind of understanding of work and life and value, which is that the, the best part of your life is sitting alone in the cab of your ute in your long commute to work, right? And that's what they're trying to take away. And that, I think, reveals, you know, this this kind of how we f- how we have this intergenerational divide around work, for one thing, but also about climate change, that you can't act on climate change because it will take away this status quo that we're so used to and is the best we can possibly hope for. You know, that that owning your own ute and sitting by yourself in, your ca- in the cab on the way to work is like the best you can hope for in your life.
1: Yeah. And I think that's very different for us because our generation, we understand that the best that we can hope for in our life and our children's life lives is keeping global temperature rises under two degrees Celsius. Yeah. Like keeping the planet habitable. Like what an idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think, look, climate change, I think is is one of the, Big ones for me in terms of defining the millennial experience, because we know we know the facts of climate change. They're in, and speaking to speaking to my friends, I read about this all the time. I think what what's happening to me and to a lot of people I know. I wonder. I mean, I kind of assume that this is your experience by now. You being like my the person I know who knows more about climate change than anyone is this sort of low level anxiety that sort of just it just has just permeated like everyday life you know and i find you know i find myself if i'm standing on the tram going into work if i have like an idle moment my thoughts more and more just turn to climate change what yep. is the world going to look like in 10 20 years time and it is this real sense of dread which i don't think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who have grown up assuming that things will get better really understand at an emotional level.
0: No, well, we're not equipped to deal with it. We were never taught how to deal with that kind of existential dread, were we? I mean, yeah. in our particular upbringing. And I think trying to explain that to parents is is really difficult because they, again, are sort of so grounded in this idea of like, we can fix stuff, stuff will get better, That that understanding that existential angst is really impossible, but also there's this Generational conflict that comes with us, because the reason we're in this situation is because of boomers, right? Yeah,
1: because the timelines around climate change, right, they basically coincided with the period of we're we're talking about where where boomers grew up and came of age.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I (laughs) I don't want to go all like environmental history and oh, please do. (laughs) But, But you know, you might have heard of this concept of the Anthropocene. Yes. Yep. Right. Which is is this idea that we're living in a a new geological, a new new planetary era where humans are the driving geological force. So we've changed the planet so much that we're in a new era. And there are a lot of scholarly debates about, in all kinds of disciplines about when to date this particular new era, how to date it. So whether it comes from changes in the atmosphere changes in the in the land so changes in the rock rock layer for example like when radioactive deposits start appearing you know is that when we date it from but for for me you know when we're talking about this generational divide the marker is what environmental historians and and scientists would call the great acceleration okay tell me about that so the great acceleration starts in about about 1950 again there are there are arguments about dates but some people date it to the first nuclear weapons test. So that's when, to go back to what I said earlier, we see the first radioactive material deposit in the Earth strata, in the rock layers of the Earth. But the great acceleration is also marked by exponential increases in consumption, in the use of fossil fuels and energy, in population, in, in basically anything you can think of. And I'll put some cool, there's some really cool visualisations that I can put in the show notes. It basically pins the start of this era where humans become a driving geological force and are changing the planet basically irretrievably to 1950, which is the, you know, right smack bang in the middle of of the beginning of the boomer generation. And so we're dealing with this kind of, you know, we are dealing with the consequences of what boomers have done and, and grappling with that conflict and the consequences of it, I think, is really difficult. But it it's also not just that, is it? Because this same generation knew what they were doing from at least, you know, the 1970s.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I mean it's hard to blame the ordinary elite yeah. boomer on the ground. But yeah, definitely at a policy level. So the best analogy I've seen drawn between boomers, well the best analogy I've seen Drawn for this situation is that of the boomer being the being the person to leave the empty to- toilet roll on the holder.
0: <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? it? It makes a lot of sense. I think it's, it it symbolises the kind of passive aggressive conflict that many of us <laughs> well, <laughs> with that's, the generation. But and I think it you know
1: to really expand on the metaphor, I think you know it's not your fault that you use it's not necessarily your fault that you use the last of the toilet roll but the least you could do is leave a new one for the next person the to use. The loop. Yeah, do. the least you could do.
0: Yeah, and I think not only that, it's not only like the least you could do. It's that when we then call you out of not replacing the toilet roll, you get this kind of like defensiveness about it that yeah. you know, it's not it's kind of not my fault or like you don't you don't know how lucky you are. That's the one.
1: That's <laughs> yeah. that's the one you always see and there's this weird attitude of jealousy. From these elite boomers for all these things that we supposedly have that they didn't. So you know, like to go back to Auntie Susie, I saw her before I before I um, unfriended her on Facebook, um, complaining in a meme about pram parks at the (laughs) shops. Yeah, apparently I don't know. It was some sort of it was this meme and it was about how you know pram parks like like millennials should be more grateful for having prime parks, or maybe they shouldn't have them at all because, I don't know, in her day she had to walk through five feet of snow, <laughs> ten kilometres through five three feet of snow to get to yeah. the local parish school, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't make any sense to me because if, you know, I, I kind of, maybe I'm just a hope, hopeless optimist, but I kind of assume that every generation should want the best for yeah. its children and for its successes. But there seems to be this real resentment of of us that's building
0: amongst boomers yeah no I totally agree and I like I've been thinking about this a bit actually it wasn't until you said that that I thought about it but like I find that because I have I have a three and a half year old in conversations about screen time with with boomers because you know of course this comes up a lot about how much screen time you have and actually there's not a lot of evidence that it's a problem you know the way that we're taught to think of it as a problem and I had this idea that you know maybe that's that's also kind of boomer jealousy. It's like boomer mums who, you know, play school was on like once a day at 9.30 and that was their their break. And so now we're being punished because we have sort of free access to, to screen time. And what comes with that is a, a little, a tiny, tiny bit of freedom that, you know, a boomer parents didn't necessarily have and that it's playing out. And maybe it is that kind of generational jealousy and resentment, which is partly, I think, as we were saying before, a defensiveness about the kind of situation that we've been left with and and have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And, yeah. do you know, I think that's, you know, maybe partly to go back to the kind of hawk keating years, it's, it's partly because boomers came of age or sort of a lot of their politics is the kind of neoliberalization and individualization of politics. And so we encounter this idea of things being earned. Yeah. That maybe weren't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things one of the really interesting things about this boomer story that you hear, you know, usually on Facebook, because I mean boomers I'm always I'm always talking about Facebook, but that's because Boomers
0: use Facebook like <laughs> through no the medium one... of minions.
1: Yeah, through oh my god, the minions <laughs> memes. I look, there's an there's an article I'm putting in the show notes. It's it's something it's something else about boomers and their infatuation with with minions. Um, so I think that so what we've talked about earlier in this episode is how, you know, boomer prosperity and boomer success was basically underwritten by the massive expansion of the state. But I don't think that's the story that elite boomers tell themselves. They tell themselves that they got there on their own merits. And I think that that is because, you know, what we saw from the late 70s onwards was the wholesale replacement of the political narrative of state support, of mutuality, of People of solidarity and people helping each other through life to the very individualistic um, neoliberal prosperity and success narrative, which says that people make their way in the world on their own merits and through individual effort.
0: Yeah, I, I worked really hard and I earned this. And if you don't have it, that must mean it's because you're not working hard enough.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think... What we have for this, for this boomer elite is a misunderstanding. So they have, they've completely misread their own story about what made them, you know, the world's most successful generation and they've completely misread that and now they're using this alternative story about merit, about work ethic, about getting there on their own as a way of beating up on millennials who increasingly see the gaps in that story because
0: it hasn't worked out for them. Absolutely. you know we we can see the kind of the lie to that story because we know you know how hard we're working, how hard our friends are working, how hard our colleagues are working, and not seeing the same results. and And it's becoming basically impossible to deny that that's not because of the erosion of the welfare state. And I think that's manifesting in a really interesting politics amongst millennials and and even kind of younger generations in the way that we see, or in the way that we might imagine a better world, yeah, which which speaks to your own expertise, I think, in
1: well, look all i've all I'll say there because I think you know we're probably running out of time um and we don't want to drone on like a boomer, is recently teen vogue teen Vogue published an article about the merits of Marxism, amazing, yeah. What I want to go back to is the role of the internet because when we do see these fights between millennials and boomers, typically they're happening on social media and specifically on Facebook. We said before that we don't think that the – I mean, we kind of agreed that the internet isn't responsible for boomers and their attitudes, but I think it does have a role to play. And do you think – what do you think of boomers and the internet? What do you see
0: in their online interactions? I think that's a really – It's a really interesting question. And for me, it goes back to, and maybe it's a kind of easy metaphor, but it goes back to the 2016 election. The internet played a huge role in the 2016 election, and I'm not talking about like Russian conspiracies or or anything like that. What I'm talking about is this idea that, you know, so much of our internet coverage is about young people and and bullying and young people being susceptible to to all kinds of things on the internet that they're not equipped to be. But actually, some recent studies, which I'll link to in the show notes, have found that it's boomers that are more likely to believe, again, I'm using air quotes, fake news or fake memes or whatever, and to deploy that politically. So to to read ridiculous conspiracy theories on the internet, to be sucked into Trump's kind of rhetoric around invasion, the way that his online advertising targets you know, that particular demographic and uses that language in order to mobilise people to go out and vote. So the internet goes from the kind of this hyper real weird situation where boomers are using memes of minions to real political consequences.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that is something that people tend to underplay is that boomers are very, they quite they can be quite naive. Yep. Or actually, no, not quite naive. They can be extremely naive. <laughs> about the nuances and etiquette and even the, the very language of the internet. Like I talked about minions, memes, you know, talking about people who type in all ca- mysteriously in all caps.
0: yep, or no punctuation.
1: yeah, all yep. caps, no punctuation, but they don't because they haven't grown up and they're not habituated to the way that the internet works. they don't understand the level the deep levels of irony that mm-hmm. are sort of govern most online discourse these days they use the they use the internet in quite a credulous way. And I think that is probably what makes them susceptible to to fake news and, you know, and makes them also likely to one, repeat all these or repeat these views ad nauseum and in a way that I think is really consolidating yep. this elite boomer perspective that we've talked about today. And also probably lies behind their willingness to go on the attack. And to you know, and to go to get really vocally defensive about the indefensible. So that is why you know Auntie Susie will talk about you know will talk up her defence of Pauline Hanson um, on Facebook, but she also knows that that is not something you broach at the at the dinner table at Christmas.
0: Okay, so what do, what do we do about
1: this? I I mean it's probably slightly cynical but i think we i think i did the right thing by walking away from auntie susie at the beginning of the year like i definitely feel like it's a weight off my mind not having to not having to engage with that mm-hmm. honestly i think and we have to remember that you know we're talking about a small section of a very large generation um what we have to do is kind of try to leave them behind and work with what we've got so you know if i think of say the new start the debate about new start that's going on so you know Calls all over all over Australian society to raise new start. We need to be bringing older people and boomers who have been disadvantaged by the world. We need to be bringing them into coalition with us, with progressive millennials, and we need to understand that we, sh- we share things in common, um, and that we need to we need to walk away from the elite boomer mentality that the world has made for us, and maybe fight for what we want the world to look like. I think that's. Pretty
0: good advice, Chloe.
1: Yeah, and I think I've managed to, in a single sentence, move from total cynicism to total optimism. So, Which is a on- rare note
0: for us to end on, yeah. I think.
1: Okay, cool. So bring on the Boomer Millennial Coalition.
0: <laughs> okay, so on that uncharacteristically positive note, that is the end of our scheduled episode's for the year which is very exciting for us we will be coming back to you next week with an update on the british elections so chloe's going to be discussing whether her predictions have come true
1: thank you for listening and um, this podcast was brought to you by rmit university